This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Father William Byrne is a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington and currently serves as the pastor of Our Lady of Mercy in Potomac, Maryland. He attended Holy Cross and studied for the priesthood in Rome. Previous to his current assignment, Father Byrne was the chaplain at University of Maryland, pastor of St. Peter's on Capitol Hill, and secretary for pastoral ministry and social concerns for the Archdiocese of Washington. Father Byrne also taught homiletics to the seminarians of the North American College. He's also a star of radio and YouTube. More importantly, Father Byrne is a friend and is beloved in our community where he serves. Welcome, Father Billy. Welcome, Father Billy. It's great to be here. (laughs) It's so much fun to have you. Now, you came from a large family filled with remarkable individuals. In fact, we know (laughs) some of your family. Your sister, Sister Didi spoke at our conference, and your brother has fixed many of our family's body parts, (laughs) including mine, my knee. So tell us about your family, and tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I'm one of eight children from the suburban D.C. I grew up, it was a vibrant, fun household, as you can imagine. Mom and dad were faithful Catholics, but they also were fun Catholics. So we <laughs> we would go to Mass, but there would always be a good time. And my father was a doctor, and actually three of my siblings are all doctors, including Sister Didi, who's also not just a surgeon, but is a nun who does surgery for the poor and was actually in the Army, called back into the Army as a surgeon and as a colonel into Afghanistan and as a nun. so An underachiever. She, an underachiever, exactly. She just wants all the attention, I think. So your family did influence you, though, to become a priest, or what was the biggest influence for you? My uncle was a priest, and so it was always part of the potential landscape. It wasn't something unusual in the family. And having been raised in Catholic schools, it was sort of always in the back of my mind. But when I was graduating college and I was thinking about being a priest, I went and told my parents, of course, And my mother said, you know, I'd love to have a son who's a priest. I'd hate to have one who was a priest. She said, go and do something you've never done before. And I was picturing myself sailing across the ocean or spelunking. (laughs) And I said, like what, mom? And she said, get a real job. (laughs) And so I went and I taught school. And then after that, I sort of grew up a little bit and entered the seminary and was sent to Rome to study. And how old were you when you entered the priesthood? I was ordained a priest at 29. I went to the seminary at 24. And then it's been a fabulous roller coaster ride ever since. What I expected is not what I ended up doing. And I have loved it this year. It's my 25th anniversary of being a priest. And I'm more joy-filled and more delighted each and every day. It's a never-ending source of fun and joy, even in the midst of really challenging 
moments. Yeah, which we want to talk about. Can you talk to us about the crisis the church is going through and your thoughts and what you're doing and what you're seeing and what is the future? Well, I am a chronically hopeful person. So I always I always believe and trust that God is always going to bring out the best. I mean, that's the season we're in right now. It's Easter. The story didn't end with death. It ended with new life or continues with new life. And so it is that a cursory glance at the history of the church makes us realize that this is not the only time we've faced a systematic crisis, especially in leadership. But I believe that the Lord is using this as an opportunity to heal, to make strong, to bring new life, and to engage people on a different level, that it's not just a top-down discussion, but a capacity for a well-informed laity to have a voice in all of this. And so, interestingly enough, our mass attendance at Our Lady of Mercy is up throughout this year. You'd think it would be the opposite. and. Right. We had 15 people come into the church, five of them are all as adults at Easter, five of whom were baptized. This year, 15 men entering the seminary for the Archdiocese of Washington. Any diocese in the world would be envious of that. So there's these signs of life and vitality, which are, I think, just proof of my own instinct that God is bringing new life continually. So it's not the time to walk away. It's the time to step forward and be a messenger of hope and, of course, of healing for victims and for those who have suffered at the hands of the church and her ministers. All of this is about bringing new life, and I think it's a really exciting time, not just to be a priest, but to be a layperson engaging in this whole process of healing. I think in the community that we're in, in part of your community, I think the one thing that we witnessed with you or see with you is exactly what you just said. It's not a time to just stay in. It's a time to go out. And we see you everywhere. (laughs) And I think that 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 is a great message. It shows us, the community, that you're standing tall and that you're there leading us a certain way. And I think that means a lot. I know a lot of people that are disgruntled, obviously. Have you ever seen it? Has anybody come up to you and said it to you? Or how do you handle it at the grocery store? Well, what I did was I think radio silence was a big mistake on anybody's part. This was a time to step up and really put it out there for people and give people an opportunity. So I preached on it a lot. I also held listening sessions. I brought in opportunities for people. And it was very challenging when we had the one listening session, people were angry. And I knew they weren't angry at me, but I was the only face that they could talk to. And so they were animated and angry and screaming even some about what needed to happen. Quite frankly, I felt like I was the Delta Gate agent when the flight had just been canceled. <laughs> yeah. like I didn't have anything to do with it, but I was, I'm there standing in people's ire. Yeah. But I realized at first my hackles were up and I took it to prayer and I said, no, wait a second, this is the privileged place. They needed someone to talk to and the Lord asked me to be there to receive that anger and help them articulate. We also had experts on canon law to talk about the role of the lady. I brought in priests who do formation to explain just what the process is. You know, there's been a characterization as if this is somehow a current issue. Yeah, it's a current issue in that we're discovering things now that happened in the past. But statistically, the drop-off is 20 years old in terms of when these atrocities, most of them happened, and many of them are 30, 40 years ago. So I think it was shocking because there was this sense of cover-up. And what happened, quite frankly, in my opinion, is, is that the bishops that were trying to move things around and keep it quiet were doing to avoid scandal. 
And they were thinking themselves, I, this is my supposition, this is just my theory, it's not in a position of anything official, but they were trying to preserve unity by avoiding scandal. And little did they know that every time that they moved somebody, sort of underneath the surface, unity was cracking up. As soon as that all came tumbling down, then there was a greater disunity than if we had just dealt with it as we now know we should have. And as you were saying, it's new life now. Those cracks now maybe can allow light. That's exactly it. It's like a broken heart. Mm-hmm. A broken heart lets light in mm-hmm. and lets love in. And sometimes it takes that pain in order for us to really become most fully alive. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts sure. on that, because I know that that's something many of our listeners are thinking about. And it's a tough subject, mm-hmm. but we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts Say, on come that. home, yeah. come home. Mm-hmm. So I love that the priesthood makes you joyful, but could you imagine what your life would be like if you had not decided to join the priesthood? It's an interesting question. First of all, I think I would be, if I didn't know the Lord and he were not in my life, which is not really the same question you're asking, I think, boy, what a mess I'd be. I'm a mess right now, but I'd be even bigger one if that were the case. I was about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, our friend Loretta, she and I had been traveling together with a whole group of people when we were in college and we were in France. I guess one night with some vino, I had told her that I was thinking about being a priest. So fast forward all these years, I'm a priest now for you know 15 years when she discovers her journal from that trip. And in the journal, she said, Billy told me last night he's thinking about being a priest. I don't think he'd be a very good one. (laughs) She said, first of all, he's not very religious, (laughs) as I think a priest should be, and he's a little selfish. And she said, it's funny now that I couldn't picture it now, and now I can only picture you as but a priest. So it's a hard question for me to answer because I can't separate. It's part and parcel of who I am. It's not something I do. It's who I am. Right. Who would you say is your greatest mentor? My guess would be Jesus, but (laughs) in addition to Jesus, maybe. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, is that I believe the job of being a pastor is about 90% listening. Mm. And uh, most people think it's about 90% talking. And I think the more listening you can do. So the number one listening is to God, to Jesus. So I do a holy hour every day. I spend an hour in meditative prayer and spiritual reading, and I do that every day. And it is essential. It's essential to be able to get centered, to get quiet, to be in relationship. Christians don't believe just in a book or a set of rules or a catechism. It's about the person of Christ. So it's about staying in relation with that. So that's number one. But I have a whole bunch of priests that I call I still do. And I would call up Monsignor Enzer when I need advice on this. He's the head of Catholic Charities. And I think of different priests. I'll even bounce stuff off of the younger clergy just to get their feel. I try to have them for dinner on Saturday nights, a bunch of guys that were students of mine when I was chaplain at the University of Maryland that are now priests of the Archdiocese. We get together often. But it's just valuable, I think, to get as many years as you can. I have a weekly staff meeting, and I invite everybody, the secretaries, everybody involved. I want as many years hearing an issue as we possibly can. And I understand Mm. that at the end of the day, I'm going to make the decision. But I rely deeply and heavily on all different kinds of people, even bouncing things off of our beloved trainer, Phyllis. Our dog trainer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And our physical trainer, Teresa. (laughs) Yeah. 
Right. Okay, the three of us share the same dog trainer and the same fitness trainer. Yeah. We're yeah. family. We We're are family. family. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about being a priest and we can see and we can witness how you live your life, is it something that you think many people should consider? Or how do you, if someone is thinking about joining the church, is there advice that you give to them? Or how do you go about that? Well, there are two different questions. The and are you first, recruiting a lot yeah. or not? Well, I mean, I do. I hopefully we each of us buy our own station of life is constantly recruiting, drawing people by seeing how we live our lives joyfully. Just to see when Danny was so sick and to see how you delved into nutrition and all the different elements. Like to me, that was inspiring. A lesson in marriage is supposed to be an example of how Christ loves the church. Well, I saw it in you all. It was a beautiful thing. So I believe that People are called to different ways of life. Many people think that in this culture that happiness is a goal. Like, I want to achieve happiness. And then they end up setting themselves up for the sort of next thing. So when my kids get into high school or my kids get into college, then I'll be able to relax. And when I get retired or whatever, people are constantly living in a not yet. But it's a shame because everything is being revealed in the now. So happiness is not a destination Happiness is a byproduct of doing the good, of Mm. being yourself is most fully alive, as St. Irenaeus says. The glory of God is man most fully alive. And women, happiness is not the destination. It's the experience of being in the right place and embracing wherever you are, of doing the good and seeking to bring about the good. And to each of us, that's being called in different ways to do that in each and every moment. For me, I really believe that it's a vocation, that this is the reason I was put on this earth, was to serve in this way. And and that Trisha and Doro, you both have your paths, but it's not a path that you whack out of the jungle. It's more like the many roads, but you know which is the right road and you follow that road correctly. And try to do it as lovingly and joyfully as possible. And then you know peace. I think that for young men to see a happy guy who is alive in the spirit is appealing without it being necessarily a sell. I'm not, Mm -hmm. it's not a recruiting as much as it is as an invitation to consider and to discern whether or not. This is what God's asking of you. You've talked about your joy and you're a happy guy. And a lot of times, People are turned away from the church because they've got a grumpy priest. How do we encourage happy people to go into leadership roles? First of all, the vetting process is very stringent in this archdiocese. They go through a lot. We've had guys who were FBI agents who were applying, and they're like, this is way harder than getting a security clearance. We're looking for human qualities, not just the capacity to be prayerful or to be able to learn theology, but to be a happy man of God is something we look for. And if you don't see it, well, then that's a sign that the Lord's calling you to something, but it's not this. And then the formation, the key of developing a spiritual life and having that great desire in your heart and be willing to connect are those elements that if they get put in place, just like a young marriage, you know, if you can build skills in marriage prep and communication capacities, then when they hit the roadblock and develop the capacity to pray together. So when I do marriage prep, I'm like, you might think you're busy now, but going to weddings in the Outer Banks is not busy. Wait till you throw (laughs) babies into this. And then you get a call in the middle of the night that you would never have wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. 
that's when all these elements are needed. And if you aren't communicating, if you're not praying, if you don't have spiritual intimacy, then words in those moments are not going to do it. Just being able to pray and be with each other. The formation is crucial, but it's also an ongoing formation. I just booked my retreat for this summer. I have a spiritual director. Mm. You have to keep on working. Right. I mean, you have to keep up on it. Mm. We talked a little bit about your role with Trisha and her family when we lost Danny. And you see people enter life and exit life a lot. What has that taught you? Just how precious every moment is. It's always the one who's crying hardest at the funeral is the one who is farthest away. Whereas the person there that was putting the bandages on or counting the pills out and feeding the soup is the one that is a part and parcel of the whole process that's so organic in the movement from one life to the next. I consider it a great privilege, especially in times of sorrow. I've learned over time that at first I think there's a hesitancy, and I say this to young priests, to feel that you're imposing yourself somehow into people's sorrow and you're not. When people lose someone they love, especially tragedy, it's as if they're suddenly thrust into the middle of the darkest forest. There's no light, and they don't know how to get out. People in ministry, but especially, I think, a priest in the Catholic context is someone who arrives at that place with the torch and says, take my hand, follow me. It's dark now. It's going to get lighter. You'll be able to see more and just follow follow the light. And so the when there's a tragedy of all kinds, and we know so many of them, especially when a young person dies, I go right to the house. I don't wait. I don't call. I just show up. And Mm -hmm. what my experience is, is that you're inevitably holding a dad who's sobbing or a mom. And again, it's painful, but it's privileged from my perspective to help because I'm bringing the light. I'm not just walking them through the dark. There were so many tragic deaths that happened at our parish and local parishes that people knew about, opioid deaths, suicides, people that just were perfectly healthy and went to bed and never woke up, you know, a sophomore at Notre Dame. And so I started a support group for those families. And I can't understand what they're going through. Only they get it. But I can journey with them. But also, I think one of the most amazing takeaways from my experience of working with these families who have died is that God's constantly speaking to us, and we're usually not tuned in. It's like we're in the TV section of Best Buy, and there's 15 TVs going on. So when God's trying to blink over here, we're staring at the one about our radiator or the dry cleaner or how we're mad at our kid or whatever, all these TVs. And suddenly when a tragedy strikes, those TVs go dark, and that they're able to see those God moments, those angel winks, God winks, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure you've experienced it also. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. And I think that in that time, it's almost like everything does drop. It's there. It's there. It's there. And it's the lesson on how you go forward. It's like, how am I going to live my life now? What did I learn from death? Which is, we're all facing, we're all going to go there. But how will this make my life more meaningful? And that capacity to be able to not wait for a tragedy, be able to dim all the other lights out. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think prayer is. When I go to prayer, I usually have a prayer word, some kind of a phrase that it switches from time to time so that I can just slowly repeat that and it dims all the TVs and it keeps me focused on the one, but it also helps me begin to see where God was working all during the day. The thought that pops in your head, I should call that person, means you should call that person now. It's amazing. They're like, oh, I needed to hear from you. Thank you. What's your favorite sacrament to administer? 
Well, I think mass... And what's it like to have that sacrament power? <laughs> it's pretty great. It's important to remember, it's Jesus' priesthood working through me. It's not me. So I'm just the pencil that he writes with. But he can really write beautiful things if I get out of the way. Of course, I think mass is such a powerful experience, the body and blood of Christ and then feeding people. I mean, it's the most fundamental thing. And I think you're strengthening them so that they can go out. I say this all the time. I'm like, this is my pulpit. Yours is your dining room, your operating Mm -hmm. room, your courtroom, your podcast. This is the place where you need to start bringing that light out to the world. So I can feed you so that you can feed others. So there's a powerful movement that it's not just, oh, yeah, okay, I check that box. No, 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 no. When we say the Mass has ended, go in peace, we mean get out of here. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Go out and transform the world because I don't know if you read the headlines. It needs it bad. We're going to shift for a second. Since this is a podcast about health, how do you take care of yourself? We see you in the gym, so mm-hmm. we can vouch for that. In our boxing class. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> How do you take care of yourself both physically and mentally? So one of the things that I've done, now it's been a little struggle with the Easter and some goodies around, is I've gone off sugar. That was 50 pounds ago, and I didn't really stop doing anything else. I just stopped eating sugar and anything that has sugar in it as an ingredient, mm-hmm. and which cuts out all processed food, basically. If a cracker has sugar in it, it's got 29 ingredients. If it doesn't have sugar in it, it's got four. (laughs) You're like, okay, well, there you go. You know, I don't need monothiotic glutamate or whatever. (laughs) Probably not in my body. But also I know, I mean, just you would know a lot more about this. It's cancer food. It's like there's nothing good about it. That was a huge redo for me. It forces you to eat healthy because you're not eating any processed foods. It really allows you to be stronger, clearer. Right. right, and serving mm-hmm. better. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you should love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and body, and your soul, so that it's like, if you take all those elements, I try to get exercise every day, and part of that is, I have a dog, a 15-month-old puppy. I just want to cut you off for just a second. He's like an awesome athlete. Oh, I know. So, okay, just, you no, 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 no. are. You are. I wish this you were television so everyone could see that you're a liar. <laughs> but no, like, you look good. But in the spinning class, or remember that one first weight class, how you yeah. took to it? And boxing, it was as if you were like a, oh, you had done it before. Forget yoga. <laughs> I don't need to sit there and do downward dog or whatever. I Give me boxing gloves and a bag and my stress and you, goes flying out the window. You that just is... took to it. Because <laughs> we were there. It was his first class. Yeah. And Jenna and I were there. And we're like, wow, look at Father Billy over there. (laughs) We ask all of our guests a couple of questions. And one of them is, what is the book that you would recommend everyone read? Now, I know, I know. That just sounded so stupid. So I think it's the favorite book and favorite quote. So favorite book is the Bible and favorite quote is anything in the Bible. Okay, besides (laughs) that obvious answer, I would have to say a book that I reread frequently is Evelyn Waugh's Brides Had Revisited. Mm. The movie wasn't good that was made recently, but the one that was a PBS thing years ago was like one of the first kind of binge-worthy PBS with Jeremy Irons. And it's set in early part of the last century through World War II of a wealthy noble family, the Marchmains, and they're Catholic. 
in British aristocracy, but it's the story is told through a friend of one of the sons and his interactions with the families. But it's really the story of grace, and it's beautifully written and it's captivating. And I go back to it about every couple of years for a, a redo because it's a, a story really about grace, even though you might not realize it, and how grace is God's working in all these different unbelievable ways. So that's probably a book that I immediately comes to mind. The favorite quote is a harder question for me. I have on my memo section on my phone, it's all quotes. So whenever something jumps out at me, whether it be in the Bible or reading an article in Vanity Fair, or something jumps out at me, I type it into there. And I feel those quotes are like stepping stones across a river, that if I read them all in totality, what's sent off my light bulb, then I start to realize, oh, God's asking me to trust more, or God's asking me for a little more openness in this area or that area. So an obvious quote would be from the Bible in the scene of the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus' first miracle. And it's not a healing, it's a party. It's a wedding party. And he's saving the couple from probably the most embarrassing thing that could happen, People came from all over, and they weren't staying at the Hyatt and then heading back the next day. It was a commitment, so you had to entertain them, and you ran out of wine. It would have been great shame. And so at the urgence of his mother, she says, go and do it. And he performs his first miracle. But then he says, what does this have to do with me? She turns to the waiters and said, do whatever he tells you. Like, you know about the power of a woman in the in the church. And I'm like, that's pretty good advice. If you do whatever he tells you, things are probably going to work out. And so I always think, do whatever he tells you. Okay, that's it. Yes, yes, Mary, I got Bottom it. Uh-huh. When you were talking about the marriage, just when you talk to young people when they're getting married, I think your advice is so important. A lot of times I heard it at Mass and then hear it from Riley and Emily and the impact that you've had on them. And and you touched on it a little bit earlier, the importance of really working on your marriage even before you're married. And you often say that, is it 50 percent? Yeah, something along that line. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it. And if you could talk a little bit about that. I think that so many people go into it ill-prepared. So in order to be ordained a priest now— You have two years after you have college, you finished a college degree and whatever, if you pursued a a non-religious degree, you have to do two years of philosophy and then four years of theology. So to be a Catholic priest, it's six years of preparation. To be married, it's six months is the minimum. You're like, wow. But it's hard to say, okay, well, great, you're engaged. Okay, well, six years from now, let's set a date so we know you're ready. I mean, it's not possible. So what you try to do is realize that it's a work in progress and help them understand most of marriage prep is done by lay couples, Mm -hmm. people that can talk about how do you navigate different families, all these type of things. But it's about laying in a foundation. And if you can do that, then, then when the hard times hit, then they're able to realize okay, we can do this together. The one big mistake I think that I cringe when I hear it is when people say, he completes me or she completes me. I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are headed for disaster. (laughs) Because if you're asking that person to fill the hole in your heart, you're asking them to fail. Nobody completes us but God. The person accompanies you through the incompleteness. I had a wedding once and the old grandma, she must have been in her 80s, stopped me because I was setting stuff up and she goes, do me a favor and don't say that marriage is 50-50. And I was like, what? And she said, sometimes it's 50-50, but 
Sometimes it's 80-20, and other times it's 30-70, you know? You have to realize that. If you think it's going to be 50-50 all the time, you know, you've got to be willing to realize that there is going to be moments where you're not up to it, and you need to be able to garner that help, and from there, 70%. It's such an important part of my ministry to help them get as many skills and meet as many people that can navigate. I think it's so important, again, watching it with my son and my now daughter-in-law. It's really made a difference in the way that I think they've approached their marriage and their lives. Father Bill, we've come to the end of our time, but could you leave us with the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, when I was in college, I remember, this is the first thing, oddly, that pops into my head. A bunch of us, when I was in college, somehow ended up at a piano bar. And there was an old (laughs) pianist playing the bar. somehow. (laughs) Somehow we ended up, mysteriously enough, I think we were on Martha's Vineyard or something, and we were walking around after dinner, and we ended up, and we were sat around the bar, and it was this old pianist, and we said, tell us your most important piece of advice. And he said, there'll always be another party. If you miss one, don't be too sad because it's going to be one just like it next week. (laughs) And I think that that sort of applies in life, you know, deal with what you where the Lord's calling you to be now. And then the next party will happen also. So if you have to sacrifice for a now, don't worry about it, because great things are going to come from that if we can live in today. That's Great so hopeful from and the piano wonderful. Bar man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Father, Father Bear. My coming. pleasure, and Love thank it. you for having me. Oh, God bless you, and God bless in. all your listeners. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.